Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Happy Halloween. We are festive this morning. It is October 31st. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. We have a, a, a busy Grand Rounds season in November as well with the launch of our mini fellowship in pulmonary as well as allergy and immunology. Heavy activities from your sections, Luke, in the next couple of weeks. And Thanksgiving coming up. So um, before we get to our speaker, uh, an opportunity to sort of share a story about learning from excellence, actually. And it's from the ICN, from the NICU, appropriately enough, given the neonatal talk this morning. And one of our neonatal nurse practitioners, Jill Brooker, um, um, was reading a result from a blood gas on a, on a small preemie and had results that suggested that they might extubate the baby. Went to the bedside, the nurse, Nishan, and looked at the results, and it didn't, it didn't jive with what she was thinking or what she had seen before and said, well, wait a second, let's, let's stop and think. Went and talked to the uh, respiratory care provider, Tim Lang, who looked at the results from the gas machine, and indeed what was in EDH was not consistent. And they certainly all agreed that had they extubated that baby based on the incorrect results, it would have been a bad outcome, but they didn't. And it really uh, illustrates um, checking and Jill checking with the bedside nurse and the bedside nurse speaking up and deferring to expertise, the bedside expertise of, of Denise, them double-checking with Tim to qualify, validate, and verify, and making sure they had the bona fide results. And that kind of double-checking and really commitment to excellence is is what the types of things we want to celebrate because it could have been the opposite. It could have been on the side of us uh, following up on an error that we would have thought was probably a near miss or this was a near miss, but a preventable error. So, so thank you to the teams. I don't think any of them are here this morning because they probably work nights just as they did a few weeks ago, but um, share with them uh, our, our gratitude and continue that that culture of safety that we have. So with that neonatology introduction, I, it's my privilege to introduce Juliet Madan, who you all know is an associate professor of pediatrics, uh, as well as epidemiology uh, in the division or section of neonatology. Some of you may not know that Juliet also has embarked on additional training in psychiatry to expand her skill set, and therefore is and, and sometimes it's playing resident in psychiatry these days around the hospital. But um, Juliet uh, is active, as you all know, and has spoken about the Children's Environmental uh, Health Center and the Children's Center. So she has invited one of her colleagues and friends uh, who she's going to introduce for our Grand Rounds this morning. Juliet. Thanks, Keith. Um, I'm very excited to welcome Jill Marin to give us Grand Rounds today, and she'll be speaking for our epi group later this morning at 10, if anyone's free, in 658W. Uh, Jill and I uh, trained together in neonatology and fellowship at Tufts, um, and uh, Jill actually attended Harvard for her undergraduate studies. Um, she's a graduate of the Tulane University School of Medicine, um, and then did her residency in pediatrics at um, the Hasbro Children's at Brown. Um, she and I did a fellowship together. Um, Jill also has a master's in public health from Tulane as well. Um, Jill's been um, very focused on her research trajectory um, since the beginning of her time, uh, actually as an undergraduate. She started doing salivary research as an undergraduate, um, and she has told me herself that she was surprised that that's um, actually where she landed um, as a leader in the field of um, gene expression investigations in saliva and preterm infants and in healthy infants as well. Um, she is now an associate professor of pediatrics at Tufts, 
Um, she is the um, executive director of the Mother Infant Research Institute at Tufts um, as well. Um, and we are very excited to hear about her research today. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Juliet and Dr. Loud, for having me. It's really a, a privilege and a pleasure to be here. And it's always, always great to see Juliet. So I have no disclosures today. And my main objectives for us is to review molecular evidence elucidating mechanisms responsible for the sex-specific differences we see in neonatal clinical care outcomes. I'm going to focus on the learning process of oral feeding, which I spend a lot of my time researching. I'm also going to spend a little bit of time looking at the influence of sex on neonatal withdrawal syndromes. And ultimately, I hope to convince you um, of the potential of improving neonatal outcomes by really generating personalized, targeted clinical care approaches based on an infant salivary gene expression analysis. So if you work in the NICU or you're a neonatologist, it is not a secret that uh, outcomes in premature infants vary based on sex. And you may hear us if we go to a delivery of a premature baby, we often say, well, at least it's a girl. <laughs> or conversely, we'll say, oh no, it's a boy. And every now and then, when that little boy won't leave ever, uh, our unit, we call him the wimpy white boy syndrome. And while these quotes may seem to be based on anecdotal evidence, in fact, there is small, uh, there's large epidemiological data supporting their basis. So let's just take a quick look. Um, you, you may or may not know, or you probably do, that NICHD, via their neonatal research network, actually has a web page. And anyone can go on to it. And before you talk to a parent, if you want to give them outcomes of, of what's going to happen to that extremely premature baby, we can put in the following information, and it's standard for everyone. We could say, well, how many weeks was this baby born? And we could put in 24. How much did the baby weigh? 600 grams. Boy or girl? Twin or not? And then did the mom get steroids? And what the calculator will automatically do based on this information is give you predicted outcomes based on that data from the NRN. And how they break it up, it's pretty much the same thing. The first three will look at survival. And then they'll just flip it and look at death. So if you are that girl at 600 grams, born at 24 weeks with steroids in a singleton, you have 59% chance of surviving or in other words, 41% chance of dying. If you're intubated, you do slightly better, et cetera. So let's go back to that calculator and just change one variable. Let's make you a boy. And if that's all I do, this is how bad it becomes. Just by being a boy, you are 11% more likely to die, period. You're 14% more, more to have death of profound neurodevelopmental impairment or moderate to severe. So it's dangerous to be a boy. It is. But it's not just for the extreme premature babies. When we look at male sex, it's also an independent risk factor for delayed oral feeding in the premature infant population. Earlier this year, one of the largest studies to date looking at feeding outcomes was actually put out by the NRN, and it was a multi-center retrospective analysis of a prospective cohort of moderately preterm infants admitted to the NICHD NRN hospitals. Their primary outcomes, they wanted to look at postmenstrual age of full oral feeding achievement and discharge home. 
There were over 6,000 infants in this cohort. They were all born between 29 to 33 weeks gestation between January 2012 and November 13. And if we just look at, well, what were the factors that contributed to oral feeding success? Here's their chart. This is the independent variable estimate, confidence interval, and p-value. And what we see, if you are male, it takes you 1.3 times more uh, longer to feed than if you're female. And it was highly significant. I also want to point out this. If you were black, you fed sooner. And so while we joke about wimpy white male, and I'm going to just talk about males here, race absolutely matters. It matters, and we need to think about that when we go to the bedside and start taking care of our infants. Of course, way back in 2006, we knew very early on, this was a paper put out by Miller et al., that as early as 15 weeks, based on ultrasound findings, girls had more mature oral motor skills than boys. Utilizing ultrasound assessment of oral upper airway regions in 85 fetuses, they concluded that oral motor and upper airway skills were emerging earlier in females, later in males. So I study oral feeding maturation, um, and I do it through salivary gene and protein expression analyses. My ultimate goal is to assess an infant's readiness to orally feed. And I try really hard to identify developmental delays that are limiting oral feeding success so that we can gear how we treat these babies appropriately in order to personalize our approach to treatment strategies based on their salivary expression profile. And oral feeding is hard. It is the most complex task we ask of our newborns. That is it. That is our first litmus test of developmental assessment. And of course, you must be able to suck, swallow, and breathe to do so. However, you also must have integrated senses, your sense of smell, your sense of taste, your hearing, your vision. You need a mature gut-brain access. You need to know you're hungry. And in our real preemies, they don't have that. But over time, the brain will talk to the gut, which will then talk to the brain to say, wake up every three hours and eat. And of course, neurodevelopment plays a huge part. So in order to develop a diagnostic platform, I've spent a lot of time comparing what the saliva of this baby looks like compared to what the saliva of that baby looks like. And traditionally, what we've done is either targeted PCR, looking for human genes, or we do microarrays. And we've done this on hundreds and hundreds of babies over the last 10 years. And ultimately, we were able to develop a platform that included a diverse range of biological functions required for successful oral feeding. What was unique about this platform is we could take saliva and put it on a PCR plate and make the call whether we saw the gene or not. Either it was in the saliva or it wasn't in the saliva. And those genes... There are five. Two are actually related to that gut-brain access that I talked about, that hunger signaling. One is MPY2R, another is AMPK. Two are related to sensory integration, Plexin and MPHP4, and one is actual facial development. Now, they're either on or off. So a mature feeder actually down-regulates MPY2R. This gene, when turned off, induces hunger and induces hyperphagia. Point three is a neurodevelopmental gene involved in facial and palate development. So again, as that's turned down, the palate and facial um, formation is almost complete. 
And then PHP-4 is involved in retinal development and visual behavior as that gets turned down, the, sense, uh, the vision senses maturing. A successful feeder also has to have two genes on. One is AMP-K. This regulates whole body energy, and activation of this gene increases hunger signaling and weight gain. And the final is Plexin A1, which controls axon guidance. And when we see increased expression, it is seen mostly in mature olfactory sensory neurons. So we actually looked um, to develop this platform at 400 babies. And here we'll see the gene sensitivity, specificity, PPV, NPV, odds ratio, 95% confidence interval, and p-value. What I want to show you is a few things. I want you to pay attention to age. I'll get back to it. Sex. We have some genes that are exquisitely sensitive, and we have some that have moderate sensitivity. But there is no magic bullet in any of these because it's complicated. We actually have to look at all of them together to understand how you feed. And when we do that, we're okay at predicting. We're at 0.78. We're pretty good. Not great, but we're pretty good. But compared to what we do now, which is we go to the bedside and say, why did that baby not eat? And we have no idea. Uh, it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. So one of the things this data showed me is there's huge biological variability. Babies have huge amounts, and in order to really get at that, I actually need thousands and thousands of saliva samples to account for that biological variability. Age matters, and this is what we do in the NICU. We just wait another day, and as you saw from that data, that actually works. You wait another day and another day and another day and another day. That will work. It may come with a cost, um, but it does work, and there's no one in this room that doesn't know how to eat, and most of our babies figure it out. And then sex. Females, even here in this study, completely independent from the NRN, completely independent from the ultrasound studies and everything else that come out, we show it again. Girls are doing it sooner. So when we went to next steps, that, that platform allowed me to get an R01, and we're in the midst of a three-year clinical trial. So we've sort of been holding our cards, collecting a ton of saliva across multiple sites in this country. We're targeting, actually, for the platform, ELBWs, and they are actually randomized to receive a treatment. It's known as the N-Trainer. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it, but it's a commercially available FDA-approved machine. And what it does is you put a little pacifier in the mouth of these very premature babies, and it pulses at them in synchrony with how you would suck, swallow, breathe. And we treat them with that for four weeks prior to initiation of oral feeding trials. Babies are either randomized to get that sensation or just have the pacifier. And we collect saliva throughout both the treatment and then the learning process of feeding. Because the data I showed you before were single time points. This will be the largest study we have to date looking at these genes, and we're going to look at gene ontogeny. So we're sitting on about 1,500 samples right now, and hopefully by the completion we'll have close to 3,000. And then we'll have a real understanding of does this diagnostic platform work? But in the meantime, I asked the question, could we learn more about feeding, particularly as it related to sex? And since the time I developed the platform till present day, really, this RNA-seq has come out and really become sort of mainstream. And I hypothesized it may improve our understanding of oral feeding competency and identify novel pathways related to oral feeding that we had never seen before. So why RNA-seq and what's so special about it? Well, it allows for single base level precision, high throughput fashion. There's less background noise, and it provides greater dynamic range of detection. 
Unlike most traditional microarrays or PCR, it's not human specific and you do not need a priori knowledge. In other words, I don't need to make my primers and probes for PCR. RNA-Seq's just gonna sequence every nucleotide in there, regardless of the species, and there's no knowledge needed beforehand. So in one sample, you can analyze gene expression, uncover novel RNA species you didn't know about, isoforms and gene fusion, and we're also allowed to look at our non-codings, what's regulating that RNA expression. So we went ahead and denied or be approved prospective single-site observational study. Uh, parents were consented with IRB approval, and our only inclusion was you had to be attempting oral feed. So you either got it or you didn't get it, but you were at least trying to do it. We didn't look at any baby born less than 29 weeks because those babies often are delayed. They may have had neurological insult, and in fact, we didn't look at any baby with a grade three IVH or greater. We did not look at any baby with a utero drug exposure or neck, or BPD, or genetic syndrome or malformation. <clears throat> we collected saliva from one single time point and always during the day. We know that babies uh, in the NICU are starting to develop circadian rhythms. Circadian rhythms do play a role in feeding, so no samples were ever uh, collected outside of daylight hours. We stabilize saliva immediately at the bedside. RNA is inherently unstable, so it is within a minute of collection that it is in a solution to stabilize it. Um, this also reduces gene expression changes once the saliva is outside the body and prohibits microbial overgrowth. And we made every attempt to match successful and unsuccessful feeders by their gestational age, by their postconceptional age, by their sex, and by their ethnicity. And you can imagine this is time consuming because you get what's in the unit. And so it takes a while to match uh, based on all those variables. This is how we collect saliva. Um, we actually just take a syringe and we cut off the ends here and we remove the plunger. We cut off the ends because then when you do that, it will hook up to your wall section that's at every baby's bedside. Okay. And we just suction their mouths. It takes about 20 seconds at most. We get about 10 microliters. We know this. We measure it. We, pr we stabilize it immediately. We vortex it. We put it on ice. We bring it back to the laboratory where as long as we put it in the fridge for a month, it's stable. Um, then we have to extract it for the RNA. So in this study, we had 24 subjects. There were 12 females, 12 males, six non-feeders and feeders in each group. Here are our gestational ages, 31, 33 and 1, 34 and 2, to 30 and 34, 29 and 32 to 35, and here are our post-conceptional ages. We really tried to control here as best we could because we know that feeding is so related to how old you are. So here and here, they match pretty consistently. Once we get our saliva sample and we got it at the bedside, we actually extract total RNA and look at its quality. Because it's total, we're going to reduce the ribosomes, we're going to prepare a library, and then we put it on the Illumina HiSeq 2000. Once we get the data, uh, this came off the Tufts cluster, we use what's known as the tuxedo suite. There are many suites that are available to analyze um, RNA-seq data. It gets its name tuxedo because the inventors decided to have bow ties and cufflinks um, in their names. So what bow tie does is it takes all the sequences that you, that you discovered with RNA-seq, all those A's, C's, T's, G's, and it aligns it to the human genome. Okay? 
Once aligned, cuff links will look at the gene transcripts, estimate their abundance, and look at def differential expression between your groups, feeders versus non-feeders, males versus boys. And then cuff diff will look at differential expression patterns between um, the two feeders and non-feeders. All data was adjusted for multiple testing. P-values are set at 0.05. And we looked um, at differential expression as a whole, just all your feeders and non-feeders, and then we separated them by sex. Once we have those differentially expressed genes, you have to ask, well, what are they doing? What are those genes? And we use IPA, Ingenuity Pathway Analysis. Again, there are many programs you can use. This is commercially available. And what it does is of those differentially expressed genes, it can look at how do they relate to one another? What are their network functions? How are they responsible for development? And then we use what's known as ClueCore to look at 3D visualization of the data, particularly with principal component analyses and heat maps. Um, the principal component analysis is a form of linear multivariate statistical analysis, which allows the visualization um, of relationship between those variables. So how did RNA-seq perform in these neonatal saliva? We had a mapping rate average of 41 to 55%, but I want to point this out, and I'm going to talk about this in my next talk. There is a huge range, okay? And the reason for that, which we now understand, is a big part of microbial interference. Remember, RNA-seq doesn't care where you knew your nucleotide came from. It's not human-specific. So if you have a ton of microbes sitting in your mouth, which we all do, you're not going to map those nucleotides to the human genome. They're going to map to the microbes. And there's variation across those sites. We also have a big understanding, and we need to address alternative splicing. So alternative splicing is one of the main reasons we share 99% of our DNA with chimps, but we're not chimps. We're humans, right? We splice our DNA differently. And in development, we really do that. Okay, we really splice differently. Uh, so too in cancer. This is important factors in both cancer and development. When we compare what's out there, RNA mapping, if you don't have bugs in there and you're not rapidly developing, you can align 70 to 90% of your nucleotides directly to the human genome. So when we look, understanding that there's varying mapping rates, this is what we find. If we look total, just between all feeders and non-feeders, we see 69 genes differentially expressed. Here they are in the PCR. These are your feeders clustering pretty nicely, but they're close to your non-feeders. We see some overlap here on the heat map. Those are the differentially expressed genes. When we asked IPA, okay, here are the genes. What are they doing? This is what they cluster into. Nervous system development and function. Here's your p-value. Of the 59, seven of those genes fell into this, this category. Tissue morphology, 10 genes. There's your p-value. Embryonic development, heme development and function, and hematopoiesis. Okay. So we can then delve deeper into those nervous system genes. And those genes that were picked up mapped to cranial nerve development and sensory integration. They were the most statistically significantly differentially expressed genes. And what we were seeing between feeders and non-feeders was abnormal morphology in cranial nerves three and four formation of retinal ganglion cells, and abnormality of aqueous humor. We also saw differences in the size of the olfactory bulb related to cranial nerve 1. We also saw global neurodevelopmental pathways that highlighted uh, migration of pyramidal neurons and axons, size of dentate gyrus and dendritic spines, 
the morphology of the meninges, and the long-term potentiation of mossy findings. And these findings, fibers, these findings supported our findings that we had seen previously. There is an enormous amount of neurodevelopmental information sitting in the mouths of our babies. It's enormous. We see it over and over and over again. We've seen it in hundreds of babies. Um, access to their neurodevelopment may very well be attainable just through a drop of saliva. What was interesting to me about my analysis was for the first time we saw genes related to memory and learning. What I showed you before was really with hunger signaling related to the hypothalamus, which was driving when babies eat. But here we could see actually the learning process of feeding. And that involved areas in the hippocampal neurons as well as abnormal morphology and migration of Cajolritzius neurons. We saw, in addition, outside of neurodevelopment, lack of palatal shelf, abnormal morphology of hindgut and mesokine, development of the abdomen, and these were coming from like our embryonic um, areas that were highlighted um, with ingenuity. And that was great, but what was most telling to me was when we went ahead and separated it by sex. So if we now separate our boys from our girls and look at feeders and non-feeders, our girls have 88 genes that are differentially expressed. Our boys had 77, and there wasn't a single gene that overlapped. They were absolutely distinct, despite the fact we didn't control for their gestational age and their postconceptional age. So let's start with the boys. 77, you can see now clear differentiation. They either can or cannot feed. It's not as tight as it was. Here's our heat map. There is no overlap. 72 of the genes mapped to a known function. Five, uh, the function was unknown. Here we see our nervous system. We pick up cardiovascular, embryonic development again, connected tissue, and hair and skin development. So I was very excited about memory, but it turns out memory was only affecting the boys. Uh, it seems like they couldn't remember how to eat, at least in this small cohort, <laughs> uh, which matters, right? It matters if that's what your problem is. Um, they had abnormal morphology in the hippocampal CA1 regions that we had seen before. The CA1 is required for contextual memory retrieval and re-experienced detailed episodic memories. We also saw abnormal myelination and formation of myelin sheath. Other areas, size of forebrain, dentate gyrus, olfactory bulb, anteric commissure, function of the central nervous system, and oligodendrocytes, all differentially expressed um, between male fe uh, feeders and non-feeders. So look at our girls. They don't separate quite as nice, um, but they still separate. We have some overlap. They have 85 mapped to a gene function. Three were unmapped. And here we see heme immune cell, lymphoid, digestive, and humoral immune response. I will focus here, since it makes the most sense with feeding. And they really had structural issues. They were the ones driving abnormal morphology of hard palate, tooth formation, secondary palate, and then intestinal development is highlighted here, morphology of the intestinal villus, neurogenesis of the intestine, development of the GI tract, and length of intestinal villus. So the heme and immunology, it may seem off. I see it all the time in saliva. Um, I'm not sure if it has any meaning in this population. Um, is it involved in cut immunity, particularly the white blood cells? Is it natural hemoglobin transition and the associated physiological anemia that we see in all our babies? 
or are they doing something else that we haven't quite understood that in development these genes are doing something uh, beyond just hematopoiesis. But it should be noted, and this is where I feel this is coming from, that when you look at saliva, the three most common cell types are the epithelial cells coming from your mouth, and then that is followed immediately by leukocytes and erythrocytes. And sometimes I believe what we're seeing is actually those cells that are sitting in saliva, and then the, the computation analysis picks them up. So sex matters with oral feeding. Um, it, it is an important impact. We see this epidemiologically. We've seen this in trial after trial. Independent people, it matters. Um, and understanding why that is at a molecular level, I hope will help elucidate the findings that we see at the bedside and drive our clinical practice. Because if we can understand sex developmental differences as they relate to oral feeding, we have an important opportunity to personalize care. Not every baby who cannot feed is going to benefit from PTOT. If your problem is, is you can't, you don't know you're hungry, I don't know what PTOT is going to do for you. If you have a sensory integration problem and you need increased kangaroo care, that's what you need. You don't need PTOT. If you need to learn how to eat, maybe you need something like the end trainer. But these are all very different babies. They all sit in our NICUs and they need different responses. So we have to begin to think about that and see them in order to, to move the needle on our clinical outcomes. So I tell you I study oral feeding and I tack it from all different areas. And it isn't just when you're premature that you struggle with oral feeding or that you feed differently. Um, Infants exposed to in utero illicit drugs exhibit aberrant feeding behavior too, and I don't need to tell this audience that we're in the middle of an opioid crisis. Every 25 minutes in this country, a baby is born that has been exposed to and potentially addicted to opioids. Last year, um, a study put out by Charles et al. looked at males with NAS. This was a retrospective cohort study of 927 infants with NAS. They were pretty much equally split, male and female. The authors controlled for maternal age, race and education, anxiety or depression, hep C infection, SSRI exposure, nicotine exposure, birth weight, size, and opioid type and amount. And what they found that more males were more likely to be diagnosed with NAS with an odds ratio of 1.18 and more likely to require treatment uh, with an odds ratio of 1.24 than their female infants. They, sh they uh, concluded that male sex is an important risk factor for the development of NAS. This is one study. If you go into PubMed, you will see many, many more. Males, for whatever reason, are being affected more by this opioid epidemic. So when we look at feeding with NAS, it's a very unique phenotype. Often these babies initially can present with uncoordinated or ineffective feeding. They chomp on the bottle, or they drool um, the liquid out of their mouth, or they're tight, or they're frazzled. They want to suck, and they just can't get it together. But once they get it together, they eat excessively. <laughs> and <laughs> you can actually do the math in the NICU. And I have my residents and fellows do it all the time. We, we consider term infants to consume about 80 to 20 kcals per kilo per day. There's variation, but that's what we go for. But when you do the math on infants with NAS, they are consuming eight, 150, 220, sometimes more calories a day you can't get enough into them, and we have made up the story that this is because, well, they're withdrawing. They're burning all those calories. 
may or may not be true. I've never actually bought into it. Um, but that's what we say, and this is what we see. What I've always long believed was that what happens with this opioid in utero exposure is that we have a developmental imbalance now. And that imbalance occurs between homeostatic energy-driven and hedonistic, hedonistic reward pathways. And we hypothesized that salivary gene expression profiles will differ between case, infants without, with illicit drug exposure and control cohorts, infants without, both match for sex and age and male and females, and that these profiles will ultimately correlate with how much food the baby is eating. So why do we think this? Well, if we look at our reward circuitry similarities in the brain between food and drugs, they have a common pathway, which ends up here. And if you look at the center of the brain in our reward center, our opioid receptor is sitting next to our cocaine receptor, which is sitting next to our feeding center, okay? These are all part of the reward pathways. So we like food, and that makes us happy, and then that changes things that we, you know, ghrelin, incident, leptin, ultimately gets back to the mesolimbic dopamine syndrome, circuitry, which is the same effect that drugs end up having. There's this crosstalk, okay? And in fact, there's emerging evidence even on uh, obese patients who have bariatric surgery. Once you have bariatric surgery, they are now more at increased risk of becoming alcoholics. It's just switching one for the other. So in this study, we actually went after targets. We know what the reward pathways are for food and drugs. This wasn't like RNA-seq where I was trying to find novel pathways. I knew what I wanted to test. And we went after our old friend MPY2R for food. We had a lot of success with this gene. We know it is in neonatal saliva and it regulates hunger. You turn it off, as you remember, to increase appetite. POMC is also a major regulator of hunger signaling. It is decreased expression here, too, that increases appetite. When you knock this gene or impair this gene out in mice, they have early onset obesity. And then our leptin receptor here, too, decreased expression increases appetite. And in, in terms of our drug, we went after the main one, the dopamine D2 receptor, and this is increased expression, drives reward-seeking behavior. So this is Dr. Elizabeth Yen. This is her work. She ran with this project. She's a junior faculty. She's outstanding, and this is her study. Um, it's a prospective case control observational study. We actually collect saliva samples from subjects within 48 hours of birth and prior to any pharmacological intervention. So I don't want to get the baby once they've started treatment. Okay, I want to get them without the treatment. It's the same protocol. We, we get the saliva, we extract it. We actually pre-amplify for those four target genes in our reference genes. <clears throat> and then we do pre-designed plates to quantify those genes in saliva. We use three reference genes for all our saliva. This is a quality control metrics. They have to amplify all three or the sample is thrown out. And we analyze the data using what's known as the delta CT threshold cycle. And what that means, just in case you don't know, is in PCR, what you're doing is you're looking to see when a gene, let's say, will amplify. Okay, it will amplify at a certain cycle. The longer it takes to amplify, the less there is in the sample. And reference genes pretty much are consistently amplifying around the same cycle. Okay, so we subtract the two. So we subtract, where did these amplify? We take a mean, geometric mean of those, compared to where your target gene amplified. You were included in this subject if you were older. 
you have positive toxicology screens for opioids and or can cannabinoids. I really wanted to look at these separate. That's really hard to do in the human because they do both. <laughs> it's rare you have this, unfortunately. Uh, it takes a long time to get, I just smoke marijuana. Um, uh, it's hard. Um, and we match for sex and gestational age. I do not look at infants or diabetic mothers here. We look at those babies separately. Those have the opposite problem. Often those babies don't eat. There are big fat babies that don't eat at all, and so they are not in this study. We wanted no mother with SSRIs. That's also hard. It's also hard to find those that aren't on the SSRIs. Um, and we didn't do congenital anomalies or CNS anomalies. We actually used two hospitals within our network for this study with IRB approval at both sites. So we looked at our delta CT values between cases and controls and case infants who did and did not require treatment. We look at gene expression differences based on sex. Uh, categorical data were analyzed with chi-squared and continuous data with unpaired t-tests. Our significance is set at uh, less than or equal to 0.05. <coughs> we recruited 103 subjects. Three fell out, this was assay failure. We run anywhere from a five to 10% assay failure in my lab with saliva, they just don't make the cut. So if you don't amplify all three reference genes, you are thrown out. So that left us with 100 infants, 50 control, 50 cases. 27 males, 23, 27, 23. Of note, we see it here again, 11 of those males required pharmacotherapy for NAS compared to 16, but when we look at the girls, only five required pharmacotherapy compared to 18. So independently, we see again, males are different. So here are our results. I want to point out, delta CT levels are inversely related to overall gene expression. So the greater it is, the less you have of it. Here are our genes. This is just straight up cases versus controls. There is no significance. They're not different. Let's look at cases, treatment versus no treatment. We start to see some trends here, okay? We have 0 0.18, 0 0.17, 0 0.27. So are these genes, you know, it's very hard to do power calculation. There is no data out there on this. So it's hard to know how many do I actually need. It may be that we need just some more to see it, um, but we're not seeing any differences until now. Let's break it up with males and females. So here are our controls. Males, females, these babies were not exposed and they don't look different, okay? But when you expose them, now they do and it's your reward system that's going off, okay? It's a DDR2. So what this suggests is that at baseline, males and females aren't different in these genes, but once exposed to drugs, males and females respond differently. They're different. We can now look at case that needed no treatment. Here again, males and females are different. Case with treatment, here we have two. DRD2 comes up and so does uh, LEPR, our leptin receptor. So again, we're seeing it here at a sex-specific level, okay? Not as a total, and it does suggest um, that they're responding differently. This is with intake. So each line is a gene. MPY2R, DRD2, leper, and POMP-C. This is how much they're eating. This is on day two, day three, day seven, and day zero. And in fact, it does correlate. On day two, when we look at babies that were withdrawing, okay, these are babies that were withdrawing, we see much higher levels of DRD2 and POMP-C. And we can see that here. DRD2 is our green, and there it is. 
and here too, even this far out. And it's correlating to how much they're eating. So the more they're expressing of it, the more they are eating. So these pilot data suggest that hyperphagia often seen in infants with NAS may be due to developmentally disrupted reward signaling pathways. In other words, the hypothesis had always been food becomes your drug. As you're weaning off those opioids, they're using feeding and they're using food. And sex-specific differences in these pathways may provide a molecular basis for the clinical outcomes that we do see in NAS. All right, one last thing I want to show you. So the effects of sex on neonatal clinical outcomes are not limited to feeding. Newborns are undergoing rapid differentiation, development of their organs and tissues, and this is particularly true of the premature infants who remain in that fetal stage of development when they're born. And when I started in this field, there was absolutely no data available um, for reliable reference genes or proteins to perform relative quantification in this age group. And there certainly were none in saliva. That was even unheard of. So we assessed three commonly used reference genes for normalization, uh, beta-actin, GAP-DH, and YWAS. And these reference genes are supposed to be constitutively expressed across all of us at the same levels, regardless of where we are. And that's how you can normalize for starting input. So we looked at the stability of these genes in 360 newborns, 360 saliva samples, and they needed to span various post-conceptional ages. We looked at insects in preterm and term newborns. And I assure you, this is not the stuff of Nobel Prizes. It is laborious. It is tedious. Uh, but it has to be done. It has to be done so that we know what we're saying and we know what we're reporting. And what we found was that there was significant expression variation in beta-actin. It was completely unstable. GAP-DH and YWAS, not that great, but a little better. Uh, and it was the males that were driving our significance compared to our females, particularly for beta-actin. It wasn't our girls. It was our males that were unstable. This was not true for GAP-DH or YWAS based on sex, okay? And this is what it looks like. Here's beta-actin. Here's our box plots. You see the wide, wide variation here. Okay, where we're getting a little bit tighter over GAP-DH and YWAS. This is everyone together, but let's split it up by week. And this is one of the problems in neonatology. Every week is different. Every single solitary week they are developing differently, and we have to get a handle on it because I can't compare a 26-weeker to a 32-weeker. I can't. I have to know what I can use to actually compare and normalize. So here's every week. Here are the plots. You can see the variation but it's here. It's this huge variation in beta-actin with the boys that were driving the significance. We no longer ever use beta-actin in my lab. <laughs> it was eliminated. But again, even at the most basic level, boys are different. They're different than girls. No matter how I look at it, they're different. So collectively, everything I've shown you today, it suggests that there's a distinct developmental time course compared to females of similar gestational ages. And this is an important point. I don't know this for, for sure. So we have two issues here. Are they developing in parallel but just earlier? Or are they developing completely different? My gut is they're just doing it on a different time course, but only time will tell. And it may be that sometimes boys do just do it different. And it may be other times that it's just girls do it earlier, but they do it the same. And I don't know, but this is one thing that I think we really need to consider. Because 
what I hope you bring away from this is those stats on those boys is not, it's not his fault. Okay? It's our fault. <laughs> it's us. We're not seeing him. We're not seeing him in the moment for who he is. And that's a problem, okay? Because merely reporting that males have worse clinical outcomes over and over and over again, go to PubMed. Hundreds of papers reporting that males have worse outcomes. That is not getting us where we need to do because it's not addressing or explaining this discrepancy. And I would argue it is absolutely positively time that we personalize our NICU care. And we can do this. We can. We can. Because if we don't begin to understand our patients in real time, in the moment, for who they are, we cannot improve their outcomes. They're just going to have the same cycle over and over again. But we live in an age where we can do this. I have shown you data on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of babies, hundreds of them. And I've done it all with one drop of saliva. I've never experimented on any of them. I've never hurt any of them. And they have taught me an enormous amount, enormous. This information is in their mouths. It is ours for the taking, okay? And the onus is on us to do this right and to use it, to use it, to learn, to learn how we can better care for these babies so we don't have the same outcomes over and over and over again. And with that, I just really need to thank the members of my lab, Prof Nakana, who did the original RNA-seq, Elizabeth Yen for the NAS, everyone at the Genomics Corps. Families give saliva all the time. You want to do a study that families will say yes to, ask them for some saliva. They're going to say yes. Uh, it's extraordinarily rare that they do not let me take saliva. The nurses and staff, they advocate for this work all the time, and then the funding sources through the years that have made this work possible. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Yes. So I don't even know where to start, but there's a few, it seems like there's a few simple approaches, as you mentioned. If you can identify which of the global pathways are not developing well, you can say, no, they don't need PTOT, they battery. Right. Thank you, Carol, on us. Um, how expensive is it, and how quick can you get these results, and how quickly can you apply it to the patient? Yeah, so I, it's, it's cheap because it's PCR. Um, it's really cheap. So either regulatory issues, CLIA certified, you have to get it into a lab, and ultimately if we have a diagnostic. But most of these are, it's a 45-minute turnaround. It's all on chip. Um, it's, it's pretty rapid. Um, and the goal would be to have it really cheap. I mean... 10 to $20. Um, would I test every baby, though? I don't know. I, I think there's a subset of babies that that's really important for. Like, um, could I feed you early and get you out? Are you really ready to go? And I could get you out and, you know, uh, you save three to five days of health care costs, which are enormous. I think that may be helpful. And then certainly the babies we stare at, they're 40 weeks they can't eat. They're 41 weeks they can't eat. They're 42 weeks they can't eat. They're 43 weeks. Those babies could highly benefit from something like that, either to target the treatment or say, look, this is a mess, right? You're not going to get it, and we're not helping you by keeping you in a NICU and not getting you the other developmental milestones that you need in a home environment that only your mom and dad can give you. Like, you don't need to be in my NICU. You need to be home, and we need to pull the trigger. Um, Great stuff, thanks. Um, did you look at all at what they're eating? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I do. 
Sure, on breast milk. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I don't have that on the on the platform. We had no difference in breast milk and formula. Actually, it was not different. But um, breast milk is an amazing substance. Uh, I often question whether there are, are genes within the breast milk that the mother sends to the baby to get them to eat, yeah. um, and is there cross contamination? Um, so it's one of the things we've not specifically addressed. Um, we always get saliva prior to a feed. Okay, never right after a feed. If it ever looks milky, it's discarded. Uh, but this concept of potential contamination, particularly on a human yeah. um, a human platform that will absolutely pick up, you yeah, know, or, genes. Or, or signaling. Companies. Right, or signaling, yes, yes. Yeah. And, um, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Dr. Levin, that was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Hypothesis for the molecular mechanism that is the basis of this difference? Well, I think it depends. Um, for the drug exposed, yes. I mean, I think food becomes the drug, and I think this is a developmental issue where the crosstalk just doesn't, it, 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 it rewires them in some way. For my diabetic babies, and we're looking at this, um, they're overfed, so they have the opposite issue. So we're targeting ghrelin and POMPC and MPY2R and insulin and insulin resistance. They're almost like saying, please stop feeding me. Like, I get how to feed, but I don't need to eat. You've overfed me the entire time. For the preemies, I, I don't know if this is, they're just doing it slower, the males, or they're doing it differently. We know from lung studies, when we, you know, look and do amniocentesis for lung maturity, girls we know are just faster, that there are days ahead of the boys. We know that. So we see this, this concept that girls are getting there earlier over and over again. We see that. And in the preemies, that just may be it. Um, the other feeding issues, I think it's either the food becomes the drug or I've been overfed. Um, is my main hypothesis, which we target. Did that answer your question? Just let's take the boys versus the girls preemies. Yeah. yeah. What makes it, what is the actual yeah, why do they molecular do? basis at that age yeah. that makes girls different than boys? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but <laughs> the women in the room can relate to Sometimes I think, you know, women, we eat more. I don't know if it lasts the whole life. I don't know if we're wired differently. Is it a hormonal issue that's driving hunger that's differently, that's different? I, I don't know the answer to it. I really don't. So can I take you to the other end of childhood? Do you know if anyone's doing similar gene studies or saliva studies in adolescence and puberty where the sequence is similarly boys lack by yeah. Not to my knowledge, or I'm not aware of the literature to suggest it. I can say of our NAS babies, those that are lucky enough to follow them, and they're a hard cohort to follow because they go into foster care or change first, they're reporting out that those babies are coming back overweight and obese. So that, that data is emerging. So, uh, and how do you know that, I mean, have you looked at the parents, particularly in the NAS babies, because, I mean, Maybe that's why they're using OBAs. Right, right. 
Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And my division chief and colleague, uh, John Davis, has been looking at that from a genomic level, okay, from a genomic level, looking at the opioid receptors in parent-child dyads to see if mutations or SNPs within those receptors are what driving it. So John does a lot of great work at a genomic level looking at that to see about the parents. Um, I'm at the transcriptomic level, so I'm looking at real-time expression. But so you could look John's work up, and he's shown that. He's shown it. Yeah, what about the hormonal? I mean, uh, it's obviously different. Yeah. Right? You know, there's this mini puberty that mm-hmm. go through at two months of age, and no one really knows what those effects of being exposed yeah. to the levels of sex hormones are. And I'm not even sure in preemies whether that shifts appropriately early. Mm-hmm. Or Occurs at the adjusted right. age. Have you done any kind of measurement? No. 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 And you know, these are all great questions, and it gets back to the pure mechanism. And you can imagine these babies are really hard to experiment on, right? We can't do it, right? We don't knock out things, we don't feed them, we don't, right? It's really observational. So a lot of this is, you know, probably needs to go back to an animal level at some point to understand. What I really try to do, and I'm going to talk a lot about uh, in my next talk, is translate what we see. So I'm probably not going to have all the answers. What I need to know is in thousands and thousands of babies, without having all the answers, will these genes that I'm identifying hold true? And will they be informative? And are they reproducible? And are they reliable? And all the intricacies, I agree with you. You know, What's driving it, I don't know. But this, at least, we can start to see some molecular mechanisms. We can start to understand in a human cohort. Right? These are humans, and I get whatever comes into the unit, and they are all confounded. <laughs> whatever the mother did, the mother right? But But if we can show it in thousands and thousands of babies, and it continues to hold true, and it provides us valuable information, that's what I aim for. Um, not perfect, by a long shot, and not all the answers, that's for sure, but a start. What is the title of the next talk? Oh, it's Applicability and Translatability of Salivary Diagnostics or something like that. We're going to talk a lot about how do we do this. And I will be doing microbiome work. We will talk about NEC, which we also study. I will share my NEC data with you based on the microbiome. So that's that. You said 10 o'clock, Julia? Yeah. Or while 6.50 with Dr. Cargis, so I'll the last question. Um, um, in epidemiology, people are starting to use like a non-nutritive sucking device. Have you ever, yeah, sure. And so they use it on newborns, and I was wondering how that fits into your paradigm and work, and what domain and what genes might be related. Because I don't think we quite understand what those signals are going to tell us. Yeah. And so I'm curious to to learn what you think they'll tell us. Yeah. yeah, we are. That's the basis of my multi-center R right now, where we're actually using one machine that develops nutritive suck. There are several machines out there, and the big difference, just in case you don't know, babies as early as 15 weeks, you can see them on ultrasound sucking, right? That, that rhythmic motion, 24-weekers can suck. Suck, swallowing, and breathe, that's a complicated task, and that's called your nutritive suck. And there are several machines on the market. We're using one and trainer, and we're giving it to babies born really early. They get the treatment 30 to 34 weeks. 
and then around 34 weeks, if they're ready, they can start to feed. So we're going to look at their gene expression throughout that whole treatment. We're going to look to see how did these genes change. Did we modify, compared to our controls who got the treatment and shams that didn't, modify, expedite? What did we do to them? And so it's, it'll be my largest study to date. I hope it shows something. It's going to be thousands of saliva samples um, that we will look at and analyze to try to understand what's going on with these babies. And you actually take measurements. Yeah, oh sure, you look at, yeah, so it's not only, this isn't just their salivary gene, we actually monitor how their suck pattern progresses, yeah, all of that data, yeah, no, we have all of it, all of it, yeah, no, we don't, but stay tuned, We're, we got about a year and a half to go in that trial. <laughs> that's right, that's right, if you'll have it, yes, 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 thank you.